Well, tonight we begin a series um, that is kind of, uh, it's a topical series technically because I'm going to not be just in one book. Um, although it's going to follow predominantly the book of Judges, we are going to look through the Judges of Israel. Okay. And uh, when I say that, I'm really talking about the leadership of Israel as a nation uh, up until the time of the kings. And so that period of time when there was no king in Israel, which takes us all the way back really to Moses as the first judge. And we're going to see how he qualifies as that very clearly. Um, and then into Joshua, uh, and then into the book of Judges, and we're going to finish up in Samuel. And we're going to look at that leadership and draw some principles from it uh, for ourselves. And also we're going to learn... <laughs> Uh, some really hard lessons along the way. Um, some of these characters are not who you would want to be your leaders. And I think that's one of the reasons I did this. I am on. I am on B. Uh, and so one of the um, aspects of what do we do when the best leadership we have it may not be... Uh, Great role models of what it means to uh, be an agent of God on behalf of an entire people. But yet God seemed to be willing to use them and use them to accomplish his purposes in the land. And whatever we want to look at in terms of their flaws and failures, one of the things we are going to see is that while they were alive, Israel stayed away from the Canaanite gods. And whatever else you have against them or might, you might find fault with them, that facet rings true over and over and over again. And so in God's prioritizing of uh, leadership value, I think one of the priorities for me in this study has been, uh, and this really is what it was born out of. I was looking at a study in conjunction with several other things uh, among them was uh, what is the priority in God's perspective of leadership of nations and peoples, and then can we translate that into the church a little bit uh, in terms of my responsibilities? What, what's the priority for us? And, uh, and this is one facet of that study. It certainly isn't a, a large part of the, what I derived there. Certainly, I spent a lot of time in the New Testament. But um, out of this, um, we start to formulate some thoughts about uh, God's perspective on leadership and what it entails. So let's really very quickly uh, have a word of prayer, and then we're going to talk about what the purpose of the judges was in an, a, a political economy that what we call theocracy, where God is king, where God rules um, over his people. And so we want to look at that a little bit and then notice the leadership principles that we encounter along the way. Let's go, Lord, in prayer first of all. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, just look into your word tonight, and we pray that you might guide us into your truth, and we pray that uh, it might be a benefit for your people to grow in our knowledge of you, to increase our faith in you, and to uh, be exemplified in our practice for you in our ministries. And Lord, we do uh, thank you for this testimony that you've given of your willingness to work through uh, imperfect people that struggle with sin and struggle with 
um, failure uh, and struggle with doubt and fear, uh, and yet you uh, choose to use them, and uh, that brings more glory to you, it seems. And so we thank you that you're willing to work through our weaknesses, and uh, we rejoice in that. We pray that as we study, that you might fill up what is weak in uh, this message and in our thoughts and in uh, the words we hear, that you might fill it with the power of your spirit tonight in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So we want to look at the point, the purpose of the judges. You say it's a theocracy, and when we think about theocracy, we immediately consider that God must be ruling through the priestly class. And so it's through the priests that God would rule, because certainly they're the ones that are bringing the issues and sin of Israel. Um, They bring them to the temple, and they are then taken care of, or the tabernacle in this case. The temple isn't until the the kingdom era. Um, And so we... We find that we would expect, well, it's going to be the Levites, it's going to be the priests, it's going to be those that are going to be ruling Israel, through which God will direct his people. And we have the Urim and the Thummim, and we think, well, the high priest is going to help Israel make those decisions, Um, and uh, we would expect that. But what we find instead is that God raises up individuals um, to certainly access that that mechanism of going to the Lord, going to the high priest, implementing those uh, resources that are available to them. But we find that when it comes into the activity of, of uh, directing a nation, of uh, what they ought to be doing, God chooses a man. Um, uh, and he employs him, and it, we find that whenever there isn't a man, there's problems. That doesn't mean there's never any problems when there is a man <laughs> leading, uh, one individual, because obviously, you know, we know Moses had lots of problems, and we know that there's leadership failure that happens in all of their um, periods of authority. But God uses them, and yet it is still theocracy. Uh, and that's why even though one of the judges sets himself up as king in Israel, we don't recognize him as the first king of Israel, because God doesn't. God didn't install him as king He took himself on as king, but he was condemned by God for that and destroyed, uh, rather, (laughs) uh, he was killed by a woman, how a terrible thing, um, for that. And so in a very, uh, someone dropped a rock on his head or something from uh, a wall. And so um, we don't recognize him as the first king of Israel because God didn't appoint him to that. He didn't anoint him for that. And so he's a usurper. And so sometimes the judges took too much on themselves and usurped authority that wasn't theirs. And so we don't want to recognize these individuals as kings because they weren't. Um, Some of them, many of them, fulfilled the role of prophet. And we're going to look at that along the way. Uh, We would look at them in a kingly role where they were obviously the commander-in-chief of the uh, armies of Israel. And that comes out a lot in the book of Judges, of course, in Joshua extensively as well. But I want to focus in on really three aspects uh, that would make these men the judges. First of all, they did, um, uh, they were, I should say, agents of God in the uh, military uh, deliverance of Israel from her enemies. Um, And that takes a very prominent role through all the book of Judges, right? 
um, and they did that sometimes single-handedly. In the case of a man like Samson, uh, who single-handedly was doing it, um, very uh, maybe a Gideon leading just a handful, a three hundred, um, and we have so we have these uh, instances, um, but we have a military leadership, and so while we certainly have the um, priestly class involved in that, and we and we notice the 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 value of the Ark of the Covenant leading the way and things like that. Uh, we see it crossing the Jordan and, and uh, we see its, its uh, instrument, one of the instruments involved in the fall of Jericho. Um, we find that the decision-making, um, God directed not through the priests, not through the high priests, and really from what we can tell, largely not through the um, and the thumb, but rather through the leader, that one, that judge that he pulls out. So we have a military um, defense or uh, deliverance or victory over the enemies of Israel. And then very closely on the heels of that is the work of the judges to keep Israel away from the gods of the Canaanites, to maintain at least at some level of a commitment to the one true and living God of, of, that delivered them out of the promised land, the, um, the Lord Jehovah. And so we find that this is one aspect of their leadership. Now when we say that, you're going to be very distraught at what that looks like occasionally. And you should be. Um, and God does, isn't necessarily pleased with some of the things that are happening um, we're going to see a great judge like Gideon, and he's going to do some weird stuff at the end. Where he, and, it, and the Bible says this became a snare to him. He got caught in associating this pile of gold that he made into an ephod um, with victory, that this was the, uh, elevated it and honored it instead of the God who gave him victory. And we're going to see a lot of that, that we would say, well, that's idolatry. And technically, yes. And by the way, he's not the first one. This is exactly what Aaron did. Aaron's statement about the golden calf um, was an attempt not to direct worship back to the gods of Egypt. That is not what he wanted. And so when he talks to Moses, he says, or when he talks to the people after making the golden calf, he says, this is a representation of the God that delivered us from Egypt. He was still trying to get the people to worship the correct God, but he was doing it through an image, an idol. And that was this attempt to get the best of both worlds kind of thing. And so, yes, it looks an awful lot like one of the idols in Egypt, uh, precisely like one, but he said, no, this is the God that delivered you, that helped you cross the Red Sea. Um, and he's saying this is just a representation of that God, which he knew was not true and it was not going to be understood by the people that way. And many times when you read about idols, um, with, among the judges, you're going to find that being the case. Um, even later on after Samson, and we get to, um, oh, I can't remember his name, not Jephthah. Um, we get to the man that... Uh, has gets a Levite. He has this uh, 
these, these things, the, these idols, you would say, but they're not Canaanite. And they're not, he's not trying to emulate the worship of the nations, but he has included one facet of their worship, that is idols, in trying to worship the one true and living God. And so he's thrilled when he can get a Levite on his payroll to be his priest. He was trying to worship the God of Israel, but it was through a mechanism that God rejected. And yet somehow, in the midst of the book of Judges, we find that uh, this was better than the alternative, which was going after the gods of the Canaanites. And so we're going to look at some of that, uh, what is better than evil. And, what, and, and you know, we talked today about the election, you know, we've got the choice of two evils, um, and maybe, or three, uh, and what's the better evil? And, and yes, sometimes God allows the better of two evils. And he simply says, well, if that's the best you can do. Uh, it's not what I prefer. It's not certainly what's going to get the greatest blessing from me. And it's not going to really set you up for ultimate success. Um, but it's at least going to enable me to um, appease my wrath to a degree and, and hold it off. And so we're going to see that creep up. But still... During the life of the judges, um, each one of them, we'll find that Israel, uh, per, a, as a nation, now it doesn't mean every family, every individual was this way, kept themselves from the Canaanite worship. And that's one facet of the judges' lives. Uh, the other um, aspect of, so there's three aspects we're looking at to identify these um, and the third aspect isn't trivial by any, any means. I don't mean to make it that by making it third. Um, but it is the, uh, the working of God through them to direct, to remind Israel of why they exist, how they existed. And so they become the instrument that keeps redirecting Israel back to the Lord is our deliverance. The Lord is our deliverance. And whenever they fail, they don't do it consistently, but that is one of the jobs that they have is to remind Israel that it is the Lord that is their God and that he is the one that gives victory. And we'll see God sometimes point blank tell them, you need to instruct Israel this way and remind them it was me that got you out of the Egypt. It was me that caused you to cr cross the sea and dry ground. It was me that helped you to cross the Jordan. It was me that delivered Jericho into your hand. It was me that did these things. It was me that, and so we're going to find God using that, and he speaks through the judge to accomplish that. Now, there are going to be a couple of judges that are in the priestly class. Um, we're going to see that. Of course, the first one that we're going to look at is Moses, and he is a Levite. So he's in the tribe of Levi. Uh, with his brother Aaron, and we're going to be looking at that tonight to kick us, kick us off in this study and really to introduce it. But I want to introduce those aspects of how we identify a judge. And so it's in this period of time before the kings, we have military leadership to deliver and um, uh, defend Israel. Uh, we have the influence of the judge to uh, keep Canaanite worship away. Uh, the false gods of the Canaanites, and we have also the judge being the spokesperson of God, kind of fulfilling a role of prophet, a spokesperson of God, pointing and seeking to bring glory to God. 
And so uh, this is their role and responsibilities. So let's go to the book of Exodus. Uh, and we want to just start off with a little review of Moses. And, and again, we might have a lot of familiarity there, um, but uh, we don't want that to keep us from a good study of this. And so um, Moses is the, is the one that is promised even before, and so in his birth we have his birth narrative, and again, he, this is not an exception. Um, there are others that we know of that are promised from birth. Um, Samson, right, he's a judge promised by, at, before his birth, before his conception, uh, and even Samuel, before his conception, becomes an example of that. And so we have some of these were identified even before birth, which means that God had already heard the outcry of his people, um, but it takes that child getting conceived, born, raised, brought to adulthood, and schooled, and then called, and, and you know, what's Moses, 80 years old? by the time he gets back to Egypt. And so um, when you hear about God responding to the outcry of his people, that's going to come up again and again and again throughout Judges. God re- hearing the people complain and cry out, and sometimes the people are repentant, and sometimes they're just saying, you know, woe is us, we're being horribly treated, um, and God's going to respond. And so Moses is one of those that was identified and promised before his conception and so we find that Moses is born, and God has already set a purpose there in Moses' life. And so Moses is uh, being hunted, really, from birth, pre-birth even, uh, and is divinely delivered. We find also that he is divinely delivered uh, when he tries to exercise some uh, behavior that is consistent with the judges and that is what do we find among the judges let's look at chapter 2 and we'll pick up verse 11 now came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew or one of his brethren so he looked this way and that way and when he saw no one he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. He said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? He said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Okay, and so when we talk about is he a judge, well, I think Israel recognized him, even at this point, that he was fulfilling the role of a judge, uh, that he was in that capacity. And so Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. We're going to stop there for a second. And again, we find in Moses a great preliminary example. Uh, What moves these guys to take on this role? And many of them see the injustice that is around them, and they go, what can be done? And they cry out to God. And among those that cry out to God, um, he selects one of them. And one of them cries out in earnest and and many times, we're going to see in the book, as we go through these different men, we're going to see them do something very similar to what Moses does, and that is take matters into their own hands. They're going to say, they're men of action. These are not um, the priests. These are, these, are, these are men that are 
soldiers, and they think of action first. They're going to take action. Uh, this needs to be corrected. I can't just sit here and complain. I need to do something. And Moses here is a great example that these men, and, and we're going to find the description of many of the judges are going to be mighty men of valor. They're going to be mighty men. Um, not just the Samson, but some of the others. And, and uh, the description that Gideon gets from uh, one of his enemies about his brothers is they were all like the king's sons. They were all of that nature, and Gideon was among those. And so we find that these men are men of action, um, and so they see the injustice, they want to respond, and their primary interest in response is to take action. And that's going to serve them very well. Because remember, number one, they're to be military, uh, leading the military response to defend or um, to deliver Israel from her enemies. And so Moses sees an injustice. He sees this Egyptian beating this Hebrew, and he takes action against him. Now, uh, that action isn't sanctioned, not by his brethren. It is not sanctioned by Pharaoh, of course. And the question that comes to mind is, does God sanction it? And we find that uh, uh, God never says one way or the other. God never condemns, never condones. And we're going to find that, as disturbing as it is to our sensitivities, um, common. That God is not going to condemn nor condone some of these men's actions. Uh, we're just going to have it declared that that's what happened. Uh, occasionally, that God will say, this is wrong, and I'm going to judge them for it, but typically it is no action taken against a Canaanite, an Amorite, a Philistine. Um, there's just no condemnation of that um, because these are the enemies of Israel. And these men of action are going to do some things that are very disturbing. And if you saw them on YouTube, you would say this is cause for riot. These men are, you know, vicious, violent, all this. You would, dis um, you would be dismayed by them, you know, hacking people to pieces that are unarmed. Well, that was their directive from God. And God wants to use men of action. And the idea of just sitting around talking about it is not sufficient um, for, for God's work for these men. And this is, I think, one of the leadership principles that we find among the judges that's consistently there. And there is one example of a time when the men would not take action. Who was it? Which judge? In the book of Judges. Deborah. She was dismayed that these men would not do it. <laughs> Take some action. They're saying, oh, we can't do that without your help. And she's like, where are the real, you know, just imagine her, where are the real men? You know, but uh, so she provides them the uh, motivation, so to speak, to move them to action. She doesn't actually lead the army, but the leader of the army is completely dependent. So we call Deborah uh, the the prophetess and the uh, leader, the, the judge of Israel, um, even though there was a man that really technically led the army in its victory. And so uh, this is one facet that God expects that if you are going to 
be as leader, you're going to be a person of action. You're not just going to plan, discuss, think about, mull it over, but you're going to do something for him. And when we get to Hebrews 11, what do we find that God lifts up as evidence of their faith? Well, among the things that evidence faith is the action you take. That we can't sit here and say, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, and have no acting verb, we have no action in our life to really correlate with what you declare with your mouth. And so Moses, from the very beginning, didn't just see injustice and say, tisk, 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 and God, you should stop that, and oh, I'm, I'm just appalled by it. No, he needed to take action. And yes, some of the actions you're going to see these men take are going to say, oh, that's terrible. And yes, right here away, uh, right away, you're saying, well, he just murdered this guy. Well, did he murder him or did he defend a guy? You know, if this was a police officer, this, this was a righteous thing. But it wasn't righteous from an Egyptian perspective. And the Hebrew people weren't understanding, but they knew what, they knew what Moses was taking on himself. He was taking on himself the role of a judge. Now he's going to try to get out of it because it didn't go so well this first time. <laughs> we're going to see that in a little bit. But uh, he was taking on that role, and this is what we're going to find in the spirit of these men, is that they're going to see injustice, and they're going to be moved to take action against it. It's not enough to just cry out to the Lord for them. They, God has put it in their spirit and their heart to do something. And of course, this gets Moses into trouble. And... Uh, now we have another Pharaoh trying to kill Moses. Uh, he, flee, he runs away. He's in the land of Midian and finds his wife there, and he's a shepherding. Um, and then we find by verse 21, Moses was content to live with the man. He gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses. She bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Um, what is Moses' homeland? That's a weird one, isn't it? He's been a stranger all his life in a foreign land. Not just now in Midian. Um, he was raised as a stranger. He was raised as a Hebrew in Pharaoh's court. That's kind of a stranger in a strange land. Um, when he tried to exercise himself as a judge, his own people didn't accept it. And that's why you're going to see later on when God calls him, he's going to say, uh, the people didn't accept me very much back then. Why are they going to accept me now? So we're starting to see a little bit of the background of why he is so tentative to receive the calling of God, though he is a man of action. He contented himself, and again, um, he is going to uh, seemingly just meld into the Midian world. Uh, but, verse 23, Now it happened in the process of time, the king of Egypt dies, Children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. God heard their groaning. This is exactly the same thing you're going to see throughout the book of Judges. It is the same pattern. And that's why I want to start to identify Moses as the first judge of Israel, and not Othniel, which is the first one we encounter in the book of Judges. And so it's the same pattern. Um, God heard their groaning, Remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that phrase is going to be replaced with another phrase, which is his, which he remembers 
the Mosaic or the Aaronic Covenant. He's going to remember the covenant he made with them at the Mount Horeb. And that's going to take precedence later on, more than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But at this point, it's that covenant. God remembers his covenant. He looks at the children of Israel. He has, he has compassion towards them. He acknowledges them as his own. And then he sets forth a plan, and he begins to implement the plan of deliverance. And he calls upon Moses. And, of course, we have this account in chapter 3 of Moses calling. And that is something that um, is pretty consistent. We're going to see throughout the book of the Judges the appearance of the angel of the Lord or the commander of the Lord's army. He shows up in Joshua. We recognize him there. But he also shows up a few times in the book of Judges. And we're going to find this very clear calling of God. Um, and we're going to find uh, that some of these men are not, they're not comfortable with it. I think we need to recognize that. They're not comfortable with it at all. In fact, it's unsettling to them. Remember Gideon? I mean, what does he do? He says, oh, I, I, are you sure it's me? All right, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. <laughs> Make sure that, are you really wanting me? Um, and we're going to see that rise up and just like, you know, to some degree, Samuel running to Eli's bed and you, you called me. No, it can't be God, you know, as a child. And so we're going to see this come in. So Moses becomes another template for this calling of God on the judges that while these men are really men of action, we also find that they are hesitant to consider themselves as agents of God leading their people. That that relationship with God and they, they, is a little frightening to them. It's disconcerting because now um, once you're the agent of God, and remember God is the king, it's a theocracy, you mess up with that, you got some serious problems. And so Moses here is going through his history with God during his calling and the excuses he puts out that we're going to see in others you know, God, I don't think I'm the right person. And, and the hesitantness, even under uh, the, the military leader under Deborah, that's um, sort of the B, um, Brock, I think. And uh, we're going to find all of these individuals, and, and they seem hesitant at first. But yet we find that God uses them. And again, while they are men of action, they are also humble. They're also recognizing that they're, they don't think of themselves as the deliverer of Israel. They just don't think of themselves in that manner. Uh, they view themselves very differently than that. That, uh, well, I might be a helper or something, but I'm not the lead man. I'm not the person you should have. And so as Moses is called, he starts putting forward his excuses. And uh, they start off in chapter 3, verse 11. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Um, I'm, a, I'm a nobody. I've been tucked away here in Midian for 40 years. Um, who am I? Well, he knows full well who he is, that he is the perfect Hebrew to go to Pharaoh because he was raised in Pharaoh's house. He knows the ins and outs of the whole palace Away, He knows uh, not just the physical buildings, but he knows the protocols. And so his claim to be nobody in the middle of the Midian desert 
um, is kind of empty. And God says, um, I'll be with you and, and I'll give you a sign uh, and, uh, to you that I have sent you. Uh, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you'll serve God on this mountain. You can bring them back to this mountain. That'll be the sign. Comes up with another excuse. Verse 13. Uh, I don't know your name. What if they ask you who sent me? So God gives him a very personal name. And uh, I am who I am. And we do have this encounter where God identifies himself to the judges. So he resolves that issue. And says, this is my name in verse, the end of verse 15 forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. And so this precious name, uh, uh, Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you, the I am. And he's supposed to go and gather the elders of Israel together and explain what has happened. And his promises in verse 18, they will heed your voice. And again, why is Moses tentative? Well, the last engagement he had with his own people, they were fingering him for a crime. The evidence is, is that the Hebrew people squealed on Moses that there was no Egyptians that saw that event, only other Hebrew people. And the question is, how did it get to Pharaoh's ears? Well, it means that he was ratted out by his own people. And so you can see his tentativeness. I'm not, they're not going to listen to me. Um, they, didn't, they didn't even accept me when I did an action as a judge before to try to deliver them. And so he has a very real concern. They won't listen. Uh, I'm not a good speaker, he goes on to say. Uh, and uh, we find... Uh, excuse after excuse. Um, and finally, God's, verse 14 of chapter 4, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he says, all right, we'll use Aaron, your brother. I'm going to solve every problem, but if you put one more excuse out there, you're liable to die here on the spot, is the indication. You will do this. And uh, so Moses goes out, goes to his dad, Father-in-law gets permission to go out and heads out. And so we find this calling is extensive for Moses. We're going to see it very brief, mostly. I think Gideon is probably the most extended one in the book of Judges. Sometimes just very, very brief. But we always have this, we have this engagement. Uh, some of the judges are just listed for us, and so we don't really know anything. It's like a verse or two describes our whole ministry. Uh, so we don't have any information about it. But we can... Uh, uh, assume to some degree that they had that calling of God in their life. And so we find Moses reticent to go and do this, tentative, and really um, getting outside of his comfort zone at this point. Uh, and remember, he showed himself to be a man of action when he arrived in Midian, right? What did he do? When he got there, he delivers um, his, father, or his future father-in-law's sheep and takes care of that and so we find that um, Moses already is still the man of justice he's still a man of action uh, I meant to talk about that when he's in Midian when he arrives in Midian uh, verse uh, chapter 2 verse 17 the shepherds came drove him away but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock uh, so he he took on a bunch of shepherds on behalf of a bunch of shepherdesses and so he he defended those girls, let them water a flock. And so 
man of action, um, can't stand injustice, got to intercede, um, and God says, you're the man. And we're going to find this consistently there, uh, this movement to uh, say, well, that's just wrong, and I need to set it right. And this, I believe, is not only a God-given trait, but it's also one of the qualifying traits where um, uh, those that are willing to watch injustice and do nothing, um, they're just going to perpetuate the problem. God expects us to take some kind of action, to intervene. Because ultimately, the role of the judge is to intervene. They are to intervene on behalf of the people and God to deal with their enemies. We are interveners. They are there uh, as the instruments of God to defend sometimes some very helpless people and to do some extraordinary acts to defend those that couldn't defend themselves. In this instance of Samson, remember that they didn't have a single sword among them because they weren't allowed to. And so people could just come and run ramshot over them and, and you find uh, instances where they, and, and that was still the case, by the way, under Saul, remember? The Philistines had taken away most of all the weapons of war and so there was only one sword found. Uh, well, that was the case under Samson, too. They didn't have weapons, and so you find him using some unusual weapons, right? <laughs> Jawbones and things like that, and foxes' tails, and he's going to cause problems with those alternative weapons and, of course, his own strength. And uh, so we're going to see this intervention that they have to go in. They have to be men of action. They're going to recognize that God is with them and the glory needs to go to him, uh, and that's what we're going to see evident all the way through the judges uh, even though they fail and do some things that we might struggle with, they aren't always the best characters to live your life after, but in their role as the judge, as their role as the deliverer, we're going to find um, that pretty consistent. They're going to take action against injustice. They are seldom the perpetrators of injustice. Uh, there's a couple of, of exceptions to that rule but as a rule they are going to be individuals that want to establish justice in the land um, and that's true for Moses here we see it evident and so he's the man and off he goes and you are all familiar with the account there of the deliverance but it's the person and character of Moses we really wanted to pull out we're going to finish up Moses next week and then uh just start walking our way chronologically right through all the judges and seeing how God has used them and then the principles. And hopefully we're going to see those. It's going to be a little repetitive maybe uh, for you to keep hearing about this. And when I get to Gideon, I'll probably be talking about Moses and referencing him as our example. Um, but this is the, the principles that God is operating on in this period and again, we might take issue with some of the things they are and do and say, um, but God is content to use them to accomplish his purposes nonetheless. And because his purposes take precedence in his workings um, over sometimes their, the issues of their own personal character, their own moral behavior, 
um, things along that line that might uh, trouble us. God says, for their purposes, um, I am content to use them as long as they bring honor to me and obey my, my, my uh, instructions of action against the enemies of Israel, the oppressors. And again, um, we're going to try to find that balance point of finding the principles that we want uh, in the midst of some of the failures and the uh, moral lapses that we see in their lives. And hopefully it'll be an encouragement to us as well that um, God knows your weakness. He knows where you've lapsed. He knows uh, those areas that you struggle with. Um, But he also knows your heart. And he knows what your intentions are, even if you aren't always perfect at making those intentions happen. (laughs) Um, I don't think Gideon intended for that ephod to become a snare. That's why it said it became a snare to him. That means that he was caught in a trap of his own making that he didn't intend to be, otherwise you wouldn't use the word ensnare. And so, and that's going to become true for uh, some of these other characters as well and we know of Samson's failures right and we say well God was still pleased to use him yes God still used him um, and so there is a prioritizing of uh, the purposes of God in men's lives and the idea that I'm sidelined because of this or that um, really isn't a biblical model um, God still expects us to be able to exercise ourselves in his kingdom's work uh, if our heart is right toward God. And it's those that say, I don't think I'm qualified, that sometimes um, are the agents that need to be used. Moses didn't consider himself qualified. He was a murderer. Nobody listened to him. When he did take action, it got him in trouble. Um, he's been a shepherd for 40 years. He by this point, wasn't eloquent. And so we um, find all these men had that idea in there that I'm not the one you probably should use. Um, but yet God is pleased to use them. And so I've encountered plenty of people who so I'm probably not the one you should be used for that. And I'm like, then probably you are. It's the ones that think, it's the ones, the ones that concern me when it comes to Church ministry are the ones that say, I'm the best person in the place for that job. And that always makes me nervous. Um, because I'm like, and I've had that happen a few times. Oh, pastor, this is how you need to use me. And I'm like, you know, you've only been in the church for three weeks, and they'll come and tell me this is how they need to, that this is what I'm good at. And typically my response to them is to put them off. What am I doing? Why am I putting them off? Well, because that's not the spirit that I find consistently in God's word. Um, That's not that that awe of God, that fear of God that says, um, I'm going to have God use me, and God uses you in your weaknesses, not in your strengths. I'm convinced of that more and more. Not only from my personal experience, but from my study of God's word, these men were used. Yes, they were men of valor. Yes, they were, 
They were men of action, um, but they didn't think of themselves as leaders of nations. But God said, that's the one I want. That's the kind of man I want. And remember Saul later on? Did he think of himself as a leader of nations? <laughs> he's hiding in the boxes over there. <laughs> yeah, he's taller than everybody, but he's just over there hiding in the crates. Uh, you got to go scare him up. And, and even to a degree, David didn't identify himself as that. Um, but uh, he was the least in his father's house. And so we want to examine these principles and apply them to our ministry and service as well. Okay, hopefully you'll enjoy the study and uh, it'll be a challenge and encouragement to you to allow God to use you um, in ways maybe beyond what you think he can. For whatever reasons you have to throw out there to God, Moses had his five or six things um, that you use to think God can't use you and they're really, um, they really just are straw men that can just be pushed over with a little wind because God can wants to use such individuals. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for uh, these examples that you give us of your working among men. And we pray that we might learn from their testimonies both that which pleases you and that which should be avoided that uh, is of concern. And yet, Lord, we want to see in there our place that you have called us to action uh, and not just to say we believe things but to really put feet on our beliefs and put them in our hands uh, in our lives that we might um, do your work and not just profess it give us strength by your spirit to do so as you promised and and we pray that we might be filled with courage to step forward and declare your truth and do your work in this day among these people that you have placed us to your honor, praise, and glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.